Have you ever been watching a TV show or maybe reading a book or perhaps even in real life and uh, had this kind of scenario play out in front of you where, um, where there's a real big problem developing? And as the, as the problem has been presented, you start to see the, the experts or the professionals uh, kind of start to move in and begin to offer their solution. And if you ever had that experience of, of standing off to the side or reading it and saying, oh, whoa, 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 I don't like, I don't like the way they're doing this. This doesn't seem right. Um, I think they're going to make this worse rather than better. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I don't really remember how old, but I do remember um, there was a one- or two-year-old boy somewhere in America who had left kind of the purview of his front yard and was walking around his neighborhood, and he fell into a well bore, so like a water well or something like that, and he fell into it. And after a little while, surely his parents saw that he was missing, and so the alerts started going out, and the police, and then the, the, the circles just widened dramatically. And it was national news. It was a big deal. And I remember, uh, finally, one day, they found him. It wasn't too many days later, but someone heard the kid crying out from the bottom of this wellbore. It was deep. It was 40 or 50 feet deep. And um, so they found him, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, so obviously what they'll do is they'll lower a person or they'll lower something into the, to the hole and they'll grab him or I don't know. Surely there's a, a machine that does that, grabs kids out of holes. Um, but that's not what they did. Instead, what they did is they brought in a drilling rig and they drilled a parallel hole to the original hole. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? It's going to take too long. Just use that machine and get him out. Do it differently. But they took a few days, and they were giving him food and giving him water down the hole. They took a few days to carefully drill this parallel hole. And then once they got to the right depth, they did it horizontally, and they rescued him. And I found out later the reason they did that is because they didn't want to drop. They didn't want anything to go wrong. They didn't want anything to drop on him right at high velocity and hurt him or anything like that. But I just remember thinking, that's not the way I would have done that. And that was a good thing. Uh, our, our pastor, my pastor Ricky, this past Sunday was telling a, a really funny story about um, a couple years ago. He has a two-story house, and the, the bathroom on the second floor was, was leaking. Some part of the plumbing was leaking, and Ricky knows nothing about plumbing, but he was watching the plumber do his work because he was trying to stop it from messing up the ceiling on the first floor. And the plumber's up there doing his work, and Ricky's standing by, and he said, Huh, yeah, that's not the way I would have done that. And the plumber looks up and says, that's because you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) And Ricky said, yeah, you're right, actually. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, In this passage tonight that we're going to read, there is a real problem going on. And it's the problem we've been talking about kind of ad nauseum for the last two weeks. I'm not going to go right back into it again tonight except for just a second. Listen to the first two podcasts if you want a fuller picture. But the problem was that as God's people, he had commanded them to go into this promised land, this land that he had promised to give them after they came out of Egypt and their slavery and oppression there. And he told them, he said, when you go into this land, you have to drive out the people who are there. For they are an evil people and they are engaged in all kinds of evil and wicked practices. You have to drive them out. In part, one of the two reasons for this was that God knew that his people were not strong enough to go in and coexist with that that idolatry, those evil practices, and not be affected by it themselves. 
And we saw last week that as they moved into the land, they did a halfway job. They kind of drove some people out, but the refrain of chapter 2 from Judges is they didn't really do their job at all. The people were still there. The Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the other ites were still there. And God's people gave over to the idolatry just like he said they would. And we see that pattern. We're going to see it every week playing out again. We're going to see it twice tonight in this passage. And the thing about idolatry and the the reason it's so captivating is that an idol, so for them it was the Baals and the Asherah and the Asherah poles and all these fertility gods and stuff. But there's really, we have idols in our own lives and in our culture. There's kind of the big cultural idols, idols of money and success and power and fame and relationships. Right? And the thing about idols is that they promise to give you life. They say, hey, if you come and give yourself to me and and put all of your hopes and dreams in me, I will fulfill you. And they do for a little while. And then the rest of the story plays out and idols leave us enslaved and oppressed. And that's exactly what we see with the people of Israel in this book of Judges. They are in oppression And so whether your idol is the Baals as it was theirs or whether it's Banana Republic or a boyfriend or booze or whatever it is, idols will promise to give us life and they will cost your life in return. And we see that's what has gone on. And they cry out to God and say, God, help us. And he does. And as we saw in the last couple weeks, he's not helping them because they're actually so sorry in their hearts. They're really not. They don't like the the consequences of their sin. They don't like the way that it's making them feel and oppressing them and all that stuff. That's what they don't like. So God's not delivering them because they're such big and great repenters. He is delivering them because he loves them. He is a jealous spouse who is after his, his bride. He has a relentless, jealous love for his people. And so he continues to raise up these judges, which I realize that's a confusing word. The judge really just means he's like he's a governor figure. He's a deliverer, someone who would come in and bring order to the chaos and restore right way of, a right way of living. And so God continues to send these judges. And I'm going to promise you, as we read this passage tonight, you're going to have a moment of saying huh, that's probably not the way I would have done that. And I would have to think that if God were responding to us, he would say this, yeah, that's because you don't know what you're doing. So what is God doing? Let's look at this passage together and see. I'm going to read verse 7 through 11 for a little bit of context, but we're going to focus on 12 through 30. This is God's word. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest 40 years. Dang it, I blew it. I'm just kidding. Uh, Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Eglon made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And then they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols near and escaped to Sirah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab subdued that day under the hand, was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is God's word. Tonight we see in this passage that God knows exactly, exactly what he is doing as he sends a very strange Savior to bring a very strange salvation for them at that time, but also for us in our time. Let's see how this works. First, right there, the strange Savior. The reason I put verses 7 through 11 in there and read them, even though they're not in your sheet, It's just to kind of set this up. Othniel is in many ways the paradigm figure for an ideal deliverer, for an ideal savior for God's people. He's got good genes. He's got good pedigree. His his uncle was Caleb, who was basically Israelite royalty, right? He was an all-star in their genealogy. But there's more than that. He's a good leader, and and we see that he was very able to quickly gather an army and go out and kick butt and take names, and he just dominates. And then it's like, and the land had rest for 40 years. And nothing really bad goes wrong with Othniel. 
And he was the last judge for whom that is the case. The rest of the judges starting tonight, it kind of gets strange tonight, and then in the coming weeks it gets weird and bizarre and then just really sad. It's a downward spiral in these judges. So let's look at Ehud tonight, this next deliverer. He's not quite the superman that Othniel was. He's a little stranger than that. What makes Ehud so strange? The first thing right there is that Ehud was an unlikely savior. He was an an unlikely savior because he was left-handed. What's the big deal about this? You see it right there in verse 15. Why does it get a mention? Is there something more than just uh, Ehud would have been in the minority of people, right? Most people are right-handed, right? We also know that right-handed people are smarter and better looking and more successful in life. Obviously, um, no, not true. Is there something more, though, than just to say, he's left-handed? Cool. Yeah, there's, abs- there's absolutely a lot more going on. And um, I, I, I usually don't like to say, like, well, in Hebrew it says this or Greek it says this. But that's kind of the key to understanding this passage, so I'm going to do it a little bit tonight. And I hope you'll see why. In Hebrew, the translation for Benjamin, which was the, the, tr- the clan, the tribe that Ehud was from, from, the translation of Benjamin from Hebrew to English is the right-handed ones. So here's Ehud, who in his own people is an outsider. He's not kind of part of the thing that, that identified them as a people. He's a left-handed person from the tribe of right-handed ones. So here he is, a bit of an outsider, but there's more than that. In Hebrew culture, the right hand was the place of power, blessing, and security. Think about this in terms of the place of power. In Exodus 15, verse 6, Moses is, is praising God, and he says this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The right hand is the place of power, but it's also the place of blessing. In Genesis 48, Joseph uh, is is giving blessings to his children, to his sons, and he is uh, about to give a blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. And Manasseh was an older son than was Ephraim. And the normal way of doing things in that culture and in many cultures was the oldest son got the lion's share of the blessings. And he would take over the father's duties, right? Think of kings. The oldest son gets uh, the right to the throne. And in Genesis 48, when Joseph is blessing his sons, Manasseh is the older one. He's supposed to get the right hand, but it says that Joseph crossed his hands And Ephraim gets the blessing of the right hand, and Manasseh flips out. So the right hand shows power, it shows blessing, but it also shows security in that culture. Psalm 16, verse 8, David, the great psalmist, the great leader of Israel, says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because God is at my right hand, I am absolutely secure, is what David is saying. And this sentiment actually continues into the New Testament too. Jesus, quoting from the Psalms, uh, quoting from David, says, uh, 
until the Lord, he will, he will continue to reign until the Lord makes all of his enemies a footstool. And until that time, Jesus will sit at God's right hand. It's a position of ruling and reigning, power, blessing, security. And Ehud is left-handed. This would have been the equivalent of, of being cursed genetically, culturally. He's an unlikely savior that God has raised up to deliver his people. But he's more than that. He's unsuspecting. Look, look down at verses 15 through 17. Ehud knew his role. God had raised him up to deliver his people, to be their savior. The word deliverer and savior is the same word in Hebrew. The, uh, uh, the author of Judges uses them interchangeably. So God had raised up Ehud to be the deliverer. Now, I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if God kind of personally revealed himself to Ehud, or I don't know if he worked through other means. But Ehud knew what he was doing. He knew that God had called him to be this Savior. And here's his opportunity, verse 15 to 17. He was taking the tribute, which was uh, be the equivalent of, of a colony paying their tax to the host nation or to the dominating nation. Ehud is taking Israel's tribute because they had been conquered by Moab. He's taking their tribute to the king, to King Eglon. Now, most likely it was uh, some sort of of bounty of crops. It might have been monetary. It might have been uh, precious metals. We don't know. But most likely in this agrarian society, it at least involved food. The best part of the food, no doubt. And he brings it to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, knowing that Ehud would soon be in Eglon's presence... He prepares for that moment, and he makes a small sword, a cubit, which is about 12 or 18 inches in length, and he fastens it to his right thigh. That's what the passage says. Now, why does this matter? It matters because, kind of back to the first point there, most people, most people would have been right-handed, and it being the thing, the, the hand of power and all of this, we're, we're to gather that most soldiers would have been right-handed. It would have been normative for that to be the case. And so, when someone would have entered a king's presence, all of the attendants and the guards, they would naturally be looking to the left thigh because you draw your sword from a cross and you go to battle. So, a little bit later on, he goes into the king's presence. And in fact, this is probably the very reason why he's allowed to get into the presence of the king and the king sends his people away. Yo, that doesn't happen. Even in Downton Abbey, all the butlers stay in the room. Certainly it wouldn't have happened with the king. They're all still right there. But they look at him and he doesn't have a sword on his left thigh. and they're, So they're thinking he's safe. We can have him come in here. He's unsuspecting. And Ehud gets all the way to verse 20, all the way into the private chamber of the king. And he says this, I have, a, I have a secret message from God for you, O king. In Hebrew, the word message is the exact same word for thing. Context di- dictates which one it is. And so imagine this. Ehud walks in and says, I have a secret message for you. And the king hears him saying, great. The king stands up as if to, to hear a word from Ehud's God. Oh, this will be fun. Let's hear what your God has to say. <laughs> And Ehud brings not a message from God, but he brings a thing from God for the king. And the thing is the sword that he had put on his thigh. 
And unsuspectingly, he plunges the sword into the belly of the king, and he dies. Ehud's an unlikely savior. He's an unsuspecting savior. Thirdly, he's unfazed in his role as a savior. Notice how in verses 19 and 26, there are mentions about the idols of the land. Whenever uh, Ehud leaves the king's presence in verse 19, it says that he turns around at the idols near Gilgal and heads back to the the castle or back to the king's quarters, right? And it says that, and you're like, oh, okay, I don't have to do that. And then the whole salvation event takes place. And then on verse 26 on the back end, as he's leaving and fleeing the king's presence after he's killed him, it says that he passes by the idols and goes to Sarah. Right, this whole salvation event is, is bookended with this mention of idolatry. Why is that the case? Maybe they were just kind of some irrelevant landmarks that get some mention, but, but maybe not, and actually likely not. The Hebrew language doesn't work that way. There is no superfluous language. It's all intentional. It all has meaning. People's names have meaning. Everything is meant. I think more likely what's going on is that God is, is, is putting this salvation event in front of the background of these idols and saying, look, I'm going to deliver you from the very thing that has enslaved you. And Ehud is unfazed by this. He is surrounded by idolatry. Even his own people, his own family for sure, they have given themselves to all these other gods. And Ehud is unfazed by it. Friends, and what we need to know about that is that that God is always doing that with our idols. He is always coming to us and saying, I am going to deliver you right in the midst, in the very presence of the thing that has you enslaved. And I'm doing it because I love you. I'm doing it because I can't stop thinking about you as my people. And I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you out from the presence of your idols. And Ehud is unfazed in that um, in that endeavor. He saves God's people. So think about this. Ehud is a strange savior. Do you know, do you know that God loves to use unlikely saviors, unlikely heroes, unlikely people in his mission to redeem, save, and restore this world? Do you know that? Do you know that it's not just that God even uses people like Ehud to do something like this? Friends, the story of Scripture is that God normatively uses people like this. That God is not out building His team from like the A-list of recruits. He does not use people like the way corporate, the corporations use and hire people. It's not based on your resume. He doesn't bring people into his kingdom who have something to offer him. He's different than a scholarship committee in that regard. God is bringing the nobodies of this world and making them somebodies. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Starting verse 26 to 28, he says, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Friends, this is how God saves. He uses the nobodies. He uses the low class to bring about redemption. He did it here in Ehud, and he would do it again in in salvation history. So I want to encourage you with that tonight. I want to pause for just a second. I want to encourage you with that because many of you probably kind of exist from day-to-day thinking that at best God tolerates you. But I just want to tell you on testimony of Scripture, that's not true. That God loves the nobodies. He loves the people who struggle. He loves the people who don't have it together. And not only does He love you, He is committed in His plan of changing and restoring and redeeming this world. He's committed to using you. The Ehuds, the Brents, the Sarahs, the whatever your name is, He loves to take the things that are not and bring to nothing the things that are. This is the normative way of God's salvation. And let's talk about that salvation because it's strange. This episode of God saving his people is, is the Kimmy Schmidt of the Bible. It's bizarre. It doesn't make sense. You see it happen and you're just like, what was that? If you don't know what Kimmy Schmidt is, you can go see it on Netflix. I don't think I can heartily recommend it, but it's really weird. And um, you get to the end of it and it just doesn't make a lot of sense right away. So let's hit pause for a second and talk about this because it's strange. The first thing we see is that this strange salvation comes amidst desperation. Look at verse 12. It says, The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, to come against his very own people. The Lord strengthened one of Israel's enemies to come and oppress them. That's what it says. God is using Israel's enemies against them in order to wake them up. God is using Israel's own enemies against his own people in order to wake them up. But it's actually worse than that. Moab is, they are not even close to Israel at the time. They are a far off enemy, geographically speaking. And so what's likely happened is that they've heard that Israel is weakening. And so they swoop in and they recapture Jericho, which is the city of Palms. They recapture Jericho, which would have been a demoralizing defeat for Israel. That's where they had the great salvation. So they swoop in. Eglon is here oppressing them, ruling over them for 18 years. These are desperate times for God's people. And into the midst of their desperation, God brings his salvation. Listen to how one commentator talks about this. He says, uh, Yahweh, which is the personal name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh's wrath against his people is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin. Let me ask you a question real quick. Do you realize that from time to time, the pain that you experience in your life as a consequence of the decisions you're making and the way that you're living and the various lovers and false gods that you're going after, do you realize that the pain and the oppression and the depression and the anxiety and all the things that happen from that, do you realize that that is not 
That's not God saying, I'm done with you. Do you know it very well may be the case that God is saying, I love you so much that I'm going to bring this pain into your life so that you will be driven away from the very things that are causing the pain. Do you have a category for a God who even uses very difficult things in your life and around the world to wake you up? I hope you realize that because that's the God of the Bible. And I hope maybe that that gives you a different slant, a different view through which to see your suffering and your struggling and your anxiety and your depression. It may not always be that there is some kind of sinful issue in your heart, but it might be that. Sometimes we're actually just oppressed from the sin of others and the sin that's just in the world. We always ought to ask, is this pain that I'm experiencing, is it something that, about me? And often you need others to help you figure that out. Okay, so uh, second thing. So he brings this salvation amidst desperation. But secondly, salvation, this strange salvation comes humorously. And it is, it is, it is funny. In verse 17, we get this strange detail which heavily influences the strange salvation. We see right there that Eglon was a fat man. Now, here's the deal, y'all. The Bible is not somehow um, kind of flippantly saying that fat people are less or that uh, if you have a weight issue that that somehow makes you in any way secondary in God's kingdom. That's not what this is saying. I want to be very clear about that. What is happening, though, is that here is Eglon, who has been gathering these tributes as he oppresses this people, and he's made himself fat as the king. But there's even more than that. The name Eglon in Hebrew has the very same root letters as the word calf. And so if you were a Jewish person reading this for the first time or for the 50th time, and you come across this passage, and it says, and his name was Eglon, and he was fat, you're like, oh my gosh, it's the fattened calf. And what happens to the fattened calf always? He gets slaughtered. So if you are a Jew who is being oppressed and you're hearing about this story or you're reading it, you get this grin on your face because you see what's coming. God is about to save his people at the hands of this fattened calf who he's going to slaughter. This is funny and it gets funnier. In verse 22, really? Really this happens? The sword goes into him. It disappears in his stomach and he poops on himself. Really? That's in the Bible, y'all. It's bizarre. And again, if you were reading this for the first time as a a Jewish person who had been enslaved and you're learning about the story of, of your salvation and what happened before you, you would get to this and you would be laughing at how God is making your enemies look foolish. He keeps going in verse 24 and 25. It says, When he had gone, Ehud that is, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and likely when they smelled the smell, let's be real, they looked up and said, Surely he's in there relieving himself. Again, probably smelling the smell. He's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And it says they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still didn't open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. What a bizarre, what a bizarre event. And it gets worse. Verse 26, Ehud escapes 
And he's inviting the rest of the people to come in and finish the salvation that he has begun there with Eglon. And it says that they went out and they slaughtered 10,000 strong. And the English translation says able-bodied men, but in Hebrew it says strong, fat men. That those people, just like their fattened calf, get slaughtered. And if you are an Israelite, if you are one of God's people and you're reading this, you are laughing. You are enjoying this story of how God is bringing this ridiculous, strange salvation. Because you need to be reminded that God is not bound to work by the rules of this world. God is a God of humor. He is a God of intelligence. He is a God of cunning. And He is the God who loves His people and will deliver them in any way possible. Thirdly, right there, it says that that He delivered them temporarily. Verse 30. It says the land had rest for 80 years. That's pretty good. Othniel, the, the rock star king, uh, judge rather, he gave him less for 40, uh, rest for 40 years. Ehud comes in and does it for 80. That's pretty good. But ultimately it's sad because the very first verse of chapter 4 says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. God's people needed a truer greater Ehud who would come and bring salvation not just for 80 years but for forever. And friends, I want to tell you tonight that God brought a greater Ehud. He brought a greater stranger Savior who would come and deliver His people from the greatest enemy the world has ever known. And He did it and it lasts forever. Consider this. that many years later, God sent this other unlikely Savior the true left-handed deliverer who no one would have looked at, looked at and thought he was anything. In fact, Isaiah prophesies and says that the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, he was nothing to look at. He was not able-bodied. He was unlikely deliverer who, who didn't hold on to his power and his blessing and his security, which he had. But he gave up his power, blessing, and security so that you might know and have it. Jesus was an unsuspecting Savior who hung on a cross alone. He was abandoned not just by His friends, but by His Heavenly Father. And on the cross, He didn't just enter the cool chamber of the roof. He entered into the coldest, darkest, most evil chamber that the world has ever known. He went into the the face of evil to deliver His people. No one suspected that His death would mean anything. But at the cross and then in the resurrection, Jesus showed that He wasn't just coming to give some small salvation. He was coming to show that He is going to deliver you from everything that you fear. Do you know that Jesus? Do you know that saving work? Do you know that Jesus comes right into the middle of the desperation that stems from your idolatry? from the very way that you're living, the things that you're choosing, the way that this world has affected you, do you know that Jesus is coming right into your life right now and says, I want you right now. I will take you. I love you. I can't stop loving you. Come and receive and experience my deliverance. Do you know Him? Friends, do you know that the cross has always been laughable? Do you know that people in Jesus' day, they laughed at Him. They spat on Him. They made fun of Him. It's always been that way and it continues to be that way. 
Friends, if you claim to follow Jesus, and if you do that without bowing to all the societal pressures around you, you do know that you will be laughed at. You do know that you will be made fun of. And you do know that when you are, you are only showing yourself to be like Jesus because he was made fun of and he was laughed at and he was abandoned and the whole thing is repeating itself in Jesus just like it did with Ehud, just like it did with Eglon. Jesus is the greater Savior. But friends, I need to tell you tonight, and it's the last thing I'm going to say. In the greater narrative and unfolding story of salvation that we have in Scripture, the Lord Jesus is the one who gets the last laugh. And it's not a laughter of, of pity. It's not a laughter of shallowness. It's a laughter of, of ruling and reigning and being comfortable in that position. And friends, if you will come to Jesus, if you know Jesus to be your Savior, then you can truly look at the things around you, the very things that feel like they are the most serious things in the world. And if you're united to Jesus, you have to know that that thing will not and cannot ultimately crush you. Because you're with Christ. You will ultimately be delivered and you will exist forever, not just for 80 years. You will exist forever in eternal bliss and joy in the company of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus. I pray that you'll have him tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.